Hello, everybody out there. This is going to be the CIFAR Midterm Elections Podcast. It's going to be a conversation between me. I'm Leon Rodriguez, an attorney in the Seifarth Washington, D.C. office. And I'm also joined by Scott Hecker, another attorney in the Seifarth Washington, D.C. office, and another Scott, Scott Mallory, an attorney in our Sacramento office. And here we are two days after the midterm election to talk about what it means in labor and employment. Guys, so, so what does it mean? I don't know. What, where, do we, where do we start with this thing? Nothing yet, right? It's unresolved. Just have to... I, I think four years ago, the scheduling of this podcast after a midterm election, we would have known everything by now, and it sure would have been fine. But I've been watching. One thing's for sure about Americans is that when our country is in a crisis, we vote. Like the midterm voting was equal almost to the voting from the presidential election, which is insane. That's crazy. So that that is a good thing, no matter how this turns out and what your personal preferences are. Yeah, I have to say that's actually kind of exciting news that, you know, because I think that's always been one of the knocks about both the midterm and the American electorate generally that, you know, our voter turnout's always a little compared to some other countries, you know, a a little lackluster. And, you know, here we are with a midterm that equals close to equals the last presidential. And it means the electorate's engaged and people care and their passion and their things going on that matter to them. So that can't be bad. Well, one thing one thing I would say in response to that is, though, I don't know what you guys think, but will there ever be like a colorful wave again? Because we've heard, I don't know, for a number of years back, Maybe it was two years ago during the last presidential election, we were going to see a blue wave. And, you know, on Tuesday, we were going to see a red wave. And we're not really seeing those waves. I think we're seeing how truly almost 50-50 the electorate is right now, yeah. or at least those who motivate to come out, Leon, to your point. It's folks who who want their voices heard and are, are maybe engaged with the issues. The question is, you know, who who is that like silent plurality, majority, you know, what what are they really looking for? Because I think that does mess with this prediction aspect that we've always played in these elections. It's been the, the game to sort of predict things. And the last few cycles, one way or another, there's seemingly been a lack of accuracy. Things aren't being totally picked up. And this time around, it seemed like it was overcorrected to, oh, everything's, you know, the Democrats are going to lose every seat possible, where in the yeah. past it was, of course, like Hillary is going to ride triumphant into the White House. So, I mean, things are yeah. sort of swinging back and forth. And it's hard, I think, to know whether there's going to be a push from one or the other party at any point anymore, or if we're in a place where it's just like gridlock is is the name of the game. Yeah, well, I mean, and, and then to kind of start into kind of the, the meat of our issue here, I, I think one of the one of the questions is what drove voter behavior in this midterm? So, you know, in terms of the Republicans that did get elected, the ones that didn't, the fact that Democrats did better than certainly the way that the, the, the midterm was being characterized by media, what seemed to be the issues out there, I think a big one is certainly the economy and a lot of polling data suggests that the, the, the economy is something that was significantly of concern for voters. You know, there's also this other factor, which is, you know, the fact that the immediate past president played such a looming role yeah. in the election. And I think that in and of itself ended up sort of disrupting the, the, the midterm dynamics that we normally see. And the other issue is Dobbs, at least in certain states, Dobbs was a big 
driving factor in people even showing up to vote. I think it was a big factor. So those are Definitely those are two, and those are two that actually do bear pretty significantly on on the labor and employment issues that we're going to try to tackle today. Before we got on, I was I was posing the 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 Fetterman question, and what does it mean that you know this pretty progressive candidate? from what is, on the one hand, very much a union state, but on the other hand, a very, very purple state, and with parts that are, you know, as beet red as they could be. What does that say as to what could happen in the labor and employment world going forward? And are there coalitions that might be built that we're not seeing right now on some of these issues? My thought is that the election of John Fetterman, at least when you compare it to some of the other elections, I thought that both Tim Ryan and Val Demings would probably perform better than they would. Of course, the Ohio and Florida factors, if big factors into that as well. Right. But the fact that John Fetterman, with a campaign in which he suffered a stroke months ago, was able to come to such a resounding victory. I think that he he comes from the burning wing of the party. I think that, that his victory was so big for the Senate that I think that I can see a coalition moving towards that burning wing a little bit more, given his success. And perhaps that's the Democrats saying, like, this is a model we should be following. But of course, that's still to be seen, right? We don't know how he's going to act once his six foot five frame gets into the Senate chambers. I also, you know, Scott, to that point, actually, that Leon, I think, was making about Pennsylvania being purple. I wonder how many of its districts actually are, as opposed to I've always I've looked at Pennsylvania and I'm from Pennsylvania. I've looked at it as kind of a microcosm of the country. Actually, you have one coast with Philadelphia. You have the other coast with Pittsburgh coast. There's no water over there. There's rivers, three rivers, I believe, with Pittsburgh over there. You have Harrisburg in the middle that could be your Chicago or whatever. But I mean, a lot of it, you have the coasts that are more liberal and you have the middle of the country or the middle of the state that are more red. And I'm surprised. I I don't know why I'm like circling back to this 50-50 split or divisiveness split. But I am curious as to whether Fetterman had purple support or if it was very and I I haven't looked, honestly, at like the precinct breakdown. Um, So I'm, I'm curious if you guys have thoughts on whether it shows the potential to bring those his victory particularly shows the the ability to gain consensus or if it's more of a kind of microcosm, we have pockets of each and never the twain shall meet. Yeah. And I, and I've been uh, uh, listening to some podcasting about that, although probably the podcasting itself is biased, but suggesting that, you know, in fact, he did gain some traction among what had previously been Trump voters. And, you know, maybe some of that is, you know, our, Dr. Oz's negatives that he may have been bringing and, you know, sort of appearing a little too elite, really, for that brand of voter, but that he has somehow packaged himself in a way. I personally think he looks like a Marvel comic villain, but I think he's been able to package himself in a way where he's a little bit of a cipher. He's clearly, when you hear him talk, if you're actually listening to what he's saying, he is, as you say, he is a Bernie liberal. But I think he's been packaged himself in a way that he appears to just be this, you know, Joe Sixpack in in a lot of ways. Uh, Yes, for sure. It's so interesting. Uh, I I think quickly, anecdotally, I recently uh, stayed in Pittsburgh when we had the government relations summer at the end of because I saw a friend there and we were talking about politics and we were talking about John Fetterman. He was like, the only reason that 
Pennsylvania is blue right now is because of Philadelphia. So, Scott, to your point, it might really just be that it's that strongholds and now we're just stuck in this suburban and urban versus rural situation that's going to be difficult to get out of. And, you know, I think John Fetterman also, to your point, Leon, is he just looks and seems authentic. And that might just be what Pennsylvanians, regardless of political party, really were looking for. Who knows, right? But I think that what I'm most interested in is what's going to happen to the PRO Act. If the Senate remains blue and the House is like, what, five Republicans seats give them the majority, what would happen to it? So, so let me share with our listeners that we are, this is actually a Zoom discussion that is occurring. So I'm watching the two Scott's facial expressions. And, and so I will say, Scott, I, I think I should quote your facial expression, which was more or less nothing or not that much yeah. or yeah. very little. So, so maybe you want to elaborate on what you were No, I mean, I think that's right, Leon. The PRO Act, even when there was a House majority of more than five Democrats and a Senate sort of majority with Kamala Harris, you didn't see activity on the PRO Act, despite the fact that I think we make this reference every time we do a podcast, but, you know, Joe Biden has said, I'm the most labor-friendly president in history. It's a big, ambitious act. I don't know what pieces can be salvaged from it. We know that some of us have been uh, thinking a lot about the independent contractor rulemaking that's out there from the wage and hour division right now and the ABC test for determining employment versus, you know, employee versus independent contractor. And I think the PRO Act actually has a memorialization of that, if I'm not mistaken. I just don't see that kind of activity happening as the majority or the, the majority in the House flips, even if narrow, uh, even if Fetterman, I mean, he's he's in the Senate, but even if there are folks like Fetterman who maybe have the ability to bring people together that are in this new House class, it just seems like it, it's it's such a, an ambitious endeavor that we're two years in and we haven't seen a whole lot of movement on it. So I'd be surprised if after losing, quote unquote, the midterms, even though it was like a far superior showing to people thought that that would somehow catalyze the movement behind the PRO Act. But I don't, Scott, you seem to maybe think like at least some parts of it could be salvaged. I don't know. I mean, look, again, this is a theoretical conversation that we're having, of course. Right. Uh, I think it's fun, but I think that there's one thing that might have been overlooked in all of this with the Republicans. Is that's Nancy Pelosi. And Nancy Pelosi has demonstrated time and time again that she is a skilled legislator who will surprise people. So if the House majority is only five seats and the Senate remains blue and they're somehow able to get maybe some pieces of it passed, I could see a situation in which Nancy Pelosi finds five Republicans who would vote for pieces of the PRO Act or pieces of some other kind of labor bill with PRO Act type provisions, right, which makes union elections easier or which makes classifying independent contractors more difficult. I could see Nancy Pelosi coming up with a legislative solution to that. Obviously, it will be extremely difficult, especially with what we expect all of the House's effort to be focused on doing investigations into the Biden administration. So when, when we had our, our policy summit back at the end of September, one of the premises of how we, how we even set up the summit was that, that we were going to have a red wave, that we would have at least a House that was sharply divided with a very, very strong Republican majority. And in fact, what we have is actually a pretty narrow Republican majority and a Senate that whoever gets the majority, it will be a razor thin uh, majority. 
you know, that, that I think presents an interesting sort of forecasting challenge with what is the administration going to do in this environment? Because I think we were yeah. assuming in our discussions and in a way our administration speakers were suggesting this, that this was going to be open season on executive action. There's yeah. going to be lots of rulemaking, lots of policymaking, lots of really using the executive authority to move forward a, a labor and employment agenda. But now we have such a closely divided Congress that the possibility of compromise along the lines of, Scott, what yeah. you're suggesting is not is not not ridiculous. It's not unreal. It's, yeah. and, and particularly given the fact that a number of more more sort of traditional pre-Trump type Republicans were getting elected in this race and that that it's, you know, it, it could perhaps be some level of return to normal order. I, I mean, I, I don't know, but it's just an interesting thing to contemplate, especially given Biden being a creature of the Senate, whether he's going to want to leave himself room to be cutting those kinds of deals. Yeah. That's a good point. And it's also tough, you know, to your point, Leon, how that can go, because it's going to be very different. I mean, either way, you mentioned before we got on, like, we're not going to see a filibuster majority here, right? So everything's kind of filibuster proof still, you know, if you have a razor thin majority either way, you know, 5149 or 5150. So I think there's that piece that would limit, you know, anything crazy from happening, I guess. You don't have these, you, we don't have the wave, as we've said. And so I think that's that's a, a limiting factor that's still out there. But, you know, another issue we were talking about, I think, is sort of if there were to be a Senate majority and a House majority that were both Republican, we've talked in the past a little bit about the Congressional Review Act, which allows Congress to pass a joint resolution that basically nullifies agency rulemaking actions. And so you could see that as a check on any executive authority. Now, there's there's all sorts of timelines and obligations and processes that you have to go through. I'm not saying it's an easy thing that you can just like throw roll it out there for every regulation you don't like. But you could see it happen here and there if the Senate actually does flip because of remaining races in Nevada, Arizona and, and the runoff that we'll see in Georgia. So, I mean, that's that could be a limit on some of the executive authority that we did talk about at our, our policy summit. And the other piece, I know we're we're talking long here, but, you know, it's interesting. So why not keep going? The other piece, I think, is the judges and the opportunity for President Biden to respond to the really, really active appointment uh, approach that President Trump took during his term and see how much he can sort of shift back to a more progressive judiciary. And so that that would be a question, too, based on those three remaining races and really who who holds the authority in the Senate, which color it is. Well, and, and I would extend that to appointments, you know, because one, one thing that's inevitably going to happen, certainly at, at the sub cabinet level, is a certain amount of movement, you know, to the, to the extent that they're staffed up that, you know, that can be done in six months from now, people will start returning to, you know, their teaching posts and their NGO leadership posts and their law firms and what have you. And so there's going to be you know, another round of, of needing to put people into various positions. That's a really different exercise if you have a, uh, you know, a majority of your party in, in the Senate versus not something else. Um, so I think that will make the next 45 days or so pretty critical to what happens in these three, you know, these three undecided races. I think that that specific, the, the appointments clause power, right, that I think that that is going to be very, very important to 
to the next two years of this administration's agenda. I mean, we pretty much know that the House is going to be Republicans, which is going to be, as Jim Jordan's already told us, it's going to be all investigations, all hearings, all the time. And at the same time, you have a Supreme Court that just issued the West Virginia versus EPA decision, just held oral arguments on another, and it looks like they're going to vote 6-3 to, again, diminish agency power. So the administration is going to get pushed on both sides, so it needs to be able to get that staffing into those administrations to make sure that they're operating at full capacity when they're kind of getting pressured congressionally and from the judiciary. And you mentioned oversight. I think one one um, interesting thing to, to try to forecast is how much of that oversight will focus on labor and employment issues. You know, I think we see some areas where, where there obviously will be focus on crime. Uh, you know, I think that'll be big and, you know, managing inflation, which could perhaps take a turn toward labor issues. Immigration, th- those are areas where I, I, I can easily foresee oversight. How much of that sort of spills into significant labor and employment oversight where CEOs will be sitting before Congress or union chiefs will be sitting before Congress? It'll be interesting to see what issues those end up being. I think, you know, if there's any issue that will will be impactful is sort of what's the solution to inflation. And so, for example, minimum wage, uh, and does that is that a potentially inflationary move and does that sort of become dead or paid sick leave? I mean, are these issues that are going to be sort of adversely affected or not, not adversely affected, but where their course is going to be determined by what's going to be probably, at least for the next year, a pretty intense focus on the economy, on inflation, on the tight job market. I mean, just a lot of these questions, I think, are going to be ones you might see being subjects of oversight. Yeah, and there were mixed, I, results, I, mixed results when it came to minimum wage questions on on the ballot in in different states, California, Maine, D.C. here where we are, Leon, voted to to get rid of the sub minimum wage for for tip workers over a period of time. We'll see what happens. I think we voted for that before and it was vetoed or or overturned by the council. I can't remember exactly the the history, but we'll see where where those kinds of things goes. I mean, go. it, It seems like obviously we're stagnant at the federal level on that, but we'll have to see whether states continue to take the lead on those kinds of minimum wage and other labor and employment issues, right? I mean, if there's more gridlock because of a closely divided Congress and a party that's different from at least one house and potentially from the Supreme Court that's not political, but, you know, it could really go back to the states as we see the Supreme Court, for example, giving more authority to the states. Um, You know, when it came to COVID, uh, the OSHA emergency temporary standard, they said, this is an overreach. This is more like a public health thing that states should handle rather than OSHA. So, you know, those kinds of things are out there and the the potential for more activity at the state level could be uh, fostered by the sort of federal close split. Let me uh, propose maybe that we have a we plan a, a holiday special, Christmas Hanukkah special, to talk about what happens uh, mid December once the uh, Georgia senatorial race between Warnock and, and Herschel Walker once that gets settled and we sort of know where this is all going to end. Should I would propose we get back together again and see where things stand at that point. What do you think? I mean, I could have this conversation for another twenty minutes. I have more to say about the CRA about judicial investigation, so I think we're good. Sounds good to me. All right, guys. So always a pleasure to chit chat with you. Thank you. Definitely.